Hey everyone, you're listening to Bionic Bug Podcast with fiction author and national security expert Natasha Bajma. Join me as I discuss the latest news about emerging technology, read chapters from Bionic Bug, and explore the real-life technologies featured in my novel. We'll discuss where fiction meets reality in the future. Hey everyone, welcome back to Bionic Bug Podcast. You are listening to episode number 36. This is your host, Natasha Bajima, fiction author, futurist, and national security expert. I'm recording this episode on December 24, 2018. First off, I have an update for Bionic Bug fans. Last week, I produced my first Bionic Bug on Location video, where I take readers behind the scenes to visit real locations in my novel. I show in particular in this one how the location of the National Baseball Park inspired the drone show that takes place at the beginning of the book. I'll include the link to the video on YouTube in the show notes. Second, um, big headlines in tech news last week, the drones are coming, and I don't mean as presents for Christmas. They've made headlines for quite a bit this past year, most significantly in the alleged assassination attempt on the president of Venezuela. Most recently, drones made headlines for closing down Gatwick, Gatwick Airport in London last week, the second largest airport in the UK. The sightings of approximately two drones shut down the airport, leading to the cancellation of hundreds of flights and disruptions for thousands of passengers. The incident has demonstrated how woefully unprepared we are for the misuse of existing technology. These types of disruptions have been predicted for years, but governments have done next to nothing to prepare for the era of drones. Today's off-the-shelf drones capabilities allow individuals to project power into the air. So think about that for a second. Um, until recently, this was the sole domain of nation states, and now anyone can go buy a $500 drone, less in some instances, that can carry cameras for surveillance, that can potentially carry small explosives, as ISIS has done in the Middle East, to kill people. Um, there are many things that we can do with drones that, that essentially equate with power, and now any individual is capable of doing this. You can read about our lack of preparedness and possible solutions in Drones at Gatwick Airport Was Just Waiting to Happen, published by Noel Sharkey on Forbes.com on December 20. One of the many unrecognized dangers of not preparing for drone incidents is the potential for knee-jerk reaction to the use of drones. In reality, drones offer many benefits, far more, many more benefits to society than risks. Think about agriculture, the use of drones to monitor and um, water and um, uh, use pesticide on crops, the film industry, the ability to capture shots that previously just weren't economically possible, construction, humanitarian aid and emergency response. Um, I think probably the next uh, major weather event will see drones uh, serve a large role in, in identifying where potential people are. Um, in order to rescue them. And then eventually someday delivery. Amazon wants to use drones to deliver packages. In the latest reporting on the incident, it's not even clear that there were any drones sighted. Um, so the most recent headlines suggest that maybe people were wrong in seeing drones in the first place, which again led to the closing of the airport. This speaks to our lack of preparedness. Drones are hard to detect, but not impossible. We should definitely not just depend on eyesight to do so. If we start shutting down airports for fear of sighting drones, we've lost the war before it's even started. Um, this lowers the bar for anyone who wishes to cause mischief, leading to major economic loss. 
We simply cannot afford to keep things as they are. All right, let's talk bionic bug. Last week, Lara made it out of the beetle tank with some unexpected assistance. Now, the team needs to figure out a plan to stop Fiddler from killing thousands of innocent people. Let's find out what happens next. Chapter 36, The Targets. Lara recoiled at her reflection in the glass door of the FBI Washington field office as she pulled it open. Justine had helped her smooth her greasy hair into a tight bun, and she'd busted out an arsenal of mascara powders and eye pencils stored in the trunk of her Honda. Still, Lara looked like death warmed over. Her eyes were baggy, her forehead scratched up, little beetle bites everywhere, and her hair clearly still a ball of grease. So much for makeup. I wonder how bad I looked before Justine's help. Compared to the top-heavy, dreary FBI headquarters where Rob worked when they were dating, the new construction of this building surprised Lara. The modern interior was outfitted with state-of-the-art technology and furnished with contemporary furniture, a refreshing change from the typical drab environment of federal government buildings. The only stench in the building came from her clothes. Lara gave herself a whiff and pulled up her nose. She'd been wearing the same clothes without a shower for several days. Hug, not again. Rob had not seen her in her best shape lately. Rob met her and Justine in the lobby and stared anxiously at the bandages covering Lara's bites. Her heart fluttered unexpectedly. Am I happy to be alive or happy to see him? He stepped toward her and gestured awkwardly with his arm, like he was going for a side hug and then pulled back. I'm glad you're okay, Rob said, giving her a half smile. Me too, Lara said, her cheeks burning hot. She avoided looking straight at him. Pity was the last thing she needed. Justine, you have my eternal thanks for saving Lara's life. I don't know what I, we would done if we'd lost her. Lara's cheeks flushed hotter. Justine shrugged. I was in the right place at the right time. Rob nodded and smiled. Do you mind if I speak to Lara for a few minutes privately? Justine raised an eyebrow at Lara and then nodded. Lara shrugged to Justine as Rob pulled her arm gently toward the corner of the lobby and stared at her for a moment. Then his eyes drifted toward the wearable smartphone on her wrist. Hey, is that new? He asked. Yeah, she muttered. My other phone bit the dust and this one might be more shatterproof. I never thought I'd see the day. Rob's face broke into a goofy grin. When they were dating, Lara had ranted against the notion of wearables. A sharp pang flared in her stomach. The last time they'd argued about her resistance to certain technologies was the day he dumped her for Bimbo Barbie. Rob seemed to notice the grim look on her face and stopped smiling. He stared at his feet and shifted his weight around. Um, I know this is not the best timing, but I wanted to talk about what happened between us in the safe room. Facing death had enabled Lara to let go of Rob's insensitive comments. It also confirmed something she'd been bouncing back and forth since she first met Rob at the coffee shop. I'm not over him. And that fact was hard to accept. What about it? Her tone was sharper than she intended. Rob took a deep breath and made eye contact. I wanted to tell you how truly sorry I am for what I did, for how I hurt you. When we spoke the last time, it came out all wrong. What I meant to say is that he hesitated, as if waiting to see her response. I've never forgotten about us, how you made me feel, working with you over the past few weeks, 
and then you nearly getting killed made me realize that. He paused again, looking uncertain and taking her hands in his. Lara, I'm still in love with you, and I don't know if it's possible, but I want to be with you. The words came crashing down on her like a meteor from outer space. She had sensed something from Rob over the past few weeks, but she didn't expect a declaration of his love. Not now, not here. Lara focused on suppressing tears and keeping her face slack. She pulled her hands away. Then why did you do it? Why did you cheat on me? Rob's face twitched, his annoyingly adorable brown eyes brimming with tears. He rubbed his hands together and stared at the floor, as if he didn't know what to say. Because I'm a complete idiot. Well, that's an understatement, but I'm going to need more than that. Um, it took me a while to realize this. You're so smart, talented, and independent. After a while, I got tired of feeling insignificant and useless. I didn't get the sense that you needed me for anything. I worried you'd dump me one day, no questions asked. Because I'm so awesome, you cheated on me? Lara's eyes widened and her chest pounded. She wanted to shout at him for being so stupid, but she remained silent to let him finish. Rob's lips quivered. So I betrayed you out of fear. I thought I'd feel more significant if I dated a girl like Alexa. At first I did, but then I felt suffocated by her neediness and became bored with her superficiality. I'm so sorry, Lara. If I could, I'd, I'd take it all back. Lara held up her hand, motioning for him to stop. She sighed heavily. Why didn't you just tell me you were feeling this way when we were together? I don't know, Lara. I keep asking myself the same thing. If I had another chance, I'd do things differently. Several minutes of awkward silence passed between them. Lara fought to hold her tears at bay. Do I want another chance with Rob? Her feelings were too muddled to answer the question, and her body ached with exhaustion. She needed to think about it. Thanks for telling me all of this. Lara took a long breath. The rhythmic clicking drew her attention to Justine, who tapped her foot impatiently across the lobby. Rob seemed to notice as well. But I really don't know how to respond right now. I need time. Rob breathed a sigh of relief. That's okay. I'll take it. I mean, thank you for thinking it over. We should probably get back to the meeting. We can talk more later? Lara nodded. They rejoined Justine in the center of the lobby. Rob apologized for making her wait and then escorted them through security and took the elevator up to the seventh floor conference room. After placing their phones in lockboxes outside the skiff, they entered the large conference room and took seats at the long oak table. Unfamiliar faces greeted her, but as Lara scanned the room, she recognized a few. Sanchez smiled at her from across the table. Maggie sat right next to him, a wide grin on her face. Lara shook her head and smiled as her best friend winked at her. Okay, let's get started, Rob seated himself at the head of the table. As the W&D coordinator for the FBI's Washington field office, I've organized this meeting to discuss what Dr. John Fiddler, our suspected bioterrorist, may be planning and to assess the credibility of the threat. If we agree the threat meets the minimum criteria, we will begin coordinating the response across the federal government. You have all the investigation file in, the, in front of you. I hope you've had a chance to read it. Rob cleared his throat. Before we begin, a few introductions. He introduced Lara and Justine to the group. Gesturing across the table, he said, Detective Mario Sanchez is here representing the D.C. Metropolitan Police as a lead for the investigation into Phil Sullivan's murder. We believe Fiddler is somehow connected to Sully's death. 
Always great to be cooperating with local law enforcement, the detective smiled warmly. Rob went on to introduce Maggie and explained her specialized expertise on insects and gene editing. Dr. Brown doesn't have a security clearance, but her knowledge of the beetles is indispensable. I've received special permission for her to sit in on this meeting to ensure an effective response. Rob continued to introduce the others. To my left is Deputy Assistant Secretary Maria Santos from the Federal Emergency Management Agency of the Department of Homeland Security. Her agency will support the response effort in coordination with the FBI. Next to her is Mr. Harold Johnson from the Office of the Assistant Secretary of Preparedness and Response at the Department of Health and Human Services. His team will handle all public health aspects. And finally, Dr. Peter Stivens from the Department of Agriculture, who will help us figure out how to neutralize the beetles. On the phone, we have representatives from the U.S. Army at USAMRID, NSA headquarters, and the FBI's Critical Incident Response Group in Quantico. Rob clapped his hands together. Okay, folks, we don't have time, any time to spare. Fiddler plans to attack his target sometime tomorrow. Before we re- leave this room today, we need to assess the threat and activa- activate our response plan. First, let's review what we know about the threat. Lara, could you tell us everything you learned while being held hostage? Sure, Lara said, looking around the room at the apprehensive faces. She relayed the long-term planning and the extent of Fiddler's operation. Fiddler has raised hundreds, if not thousands, of adult Christmas beetles in his lab, all of which are outfitted with microelectronics backpacks and have genetic modifications, allowing the beetles to bite people and transmit the plague. Based on what he told me, he started the research as an effort to demonstrate critical vulnerabilities to emerging threats and was fired for it. That sounds like a decent motive for his planned attack against Fort Dietrich, Sanchez noted, rubbing his chin, that and his mother's death many years ago. Lars shook her head. He seems to have gone over his mother's death. I think his motivation has become more complex than a simple revenge plot. Rob shot her a confused look. Lars continued. In his time at Fort Dietrich, Fiddler became a true believer in the biodefense efforts undertaken by the U.S. government. His belief in the precedence of bio defense became so zealous that he could not accept any deviation from the goal of protecting America from biothreats. For example, Fiddler didn't understand why the U.S. Army was willing to conduct bioweapons tests in the 1960s on American citizens, but unwilling to explore our increasing vulnerabilities to bioattacks arising from gene editing tools. So the Army's hypocrisy pissed him off, and he experimented at home, Sanchez asked. Lara nodded. His wife ended up dying as a result of one of his home experiments. He seemed quite broken up over it and blames the army for forcing his hand. His wife's death must have caused him to snap somehow, Rob said. Did he move his lab to his current location after his death? Her death? Lar shrugged. She didn't know. Justine leaned forward, resting her elbows on the table. Based on my research, Fiddler set up the front company several years ago under the alias of Frank Moore, and moved his laboratory into the space before his wife's death. I'm not sure why he was still running experiments at his home. Lara, do you have anything more to share? Rob asked. She told the group about Cybershop's alleged role in the deaths of Fiddler's son-in-law and grandson, Fiddler's suspicion that Cybershop worked at NSA, and his anger about the NSA's attempt to frame his daughter. Are we absolutely sure these are the two targets? Rob looked directly at Lara. She sighed. Well, Fiddler had maps of both sites on his wall, with markings indicating a plan of approach for the release of the beetles. They were the same maps we found at the violin shop. What other sites could he possibly be targeting? 
I just want to be certain, Rob frowned. You don't think Fiddler misled you in any way? Maybe trying to throw us off the scent? Lars shook her head in exasperation. He told me his plans in excruciating detail, and he expected that that beetle tank would be the end of me. He left me there to die, so why go through the trouble of misleading me? Rob nodded apologetically. Okay, okay. We need to be absolutely sure of the targets before we decide to move forward with limited resources in response to the threat. What else can you tell me about his plans? Fiddler plans to release the beetles during the day tomorrow. He mentioned that the beetles are nocturnal and will cluster in the trees until dusk. He expects the beetles to become active when employees leave work and head out to the parking lots to go home. Become active? I thought he controlled the beetles with microelectronics packages, Maggie interjected. Lara shrugged her shoulders. Maybe they're easiest to control at certain times of the day? No one had any answers. The timeline means he would be moving the beetles into place today. Rob turned his face toward the teleconferencing phone in the middle of the table. Let's station some additional security forces at the perimeters of Fort Meade and Fort Dietrich to keep an eye out for anything suspicious. Representatives from NSA and U.S. Army, can you support that? Copy that. We already called in an extra unit for Fort Dietrich, the Army representative said, the gruff voice blaring over the teleconference speaker. Same here, the NSA representative confirmed. Did he say if someone else was working with him? Rob asked, turning back to Lara. She shook her head. Rob creased his brow. If he has to control the beetles, even in swarms, he can't attack both sites by himself. Ashton is dead, and we don't know of anyone else working with Fiddler. Maybe Fiddler doesn't need to be at both sites at the same time, Maggie asked. Perhaps he can release the beetles and control them from afar. That would require an impressive signal range for controlling both swarms, Rob said. The two sites are more than 50 miles apart. He didn't say how he would do it, Lara added. Remember Ashton talking about the upgrade he engineered to allow for autonomous navigation? Maybe the swarms are pre-programmed, Maggie offered. Lara nodded. I suppose that's possible, Rob said, frowning skeptically. The detective cleared his throat. I don't think Fiddler is acting alone. Anita must somehow be involved in the attack. She has as much motive as her father, and now she's, he used air quotes, left town? Sounds guilty to me. Based on what evidence, Lara asked, I thought you didn't build cases on your gut alone. Sanchez scowled at her. There's plenty of circumstantial evidence to support her involvement. NSA's suspicions about her being Frank's accomplice, the cash infusions to her bank account, her prints and DNA we found at the Beautific Creations warehouse, matching the prints on your baseball glove, trace DNA evidence at your townhouse, the list goes on and on. He raised his voice a bit with every example. When we searched her office at the practice, we also found an old computer with Tor installed. That's where Anita must have logged onto the dark web message board at Cybershop. Anita used Tor. The cops found her DNA. She didn't know where to start or what revolution surprised her more. In the hour she'd been held hostage, she'd missed out a great deal. Lara's eyes widened. Anita left DNA at my townhouse? Sanchez nodded. We found trace evidence matching D Anita's pro DNA profile in your apartment. We also tested your baseball glove, the one you found at her office, and found several sets of prints, including Anita's. Whose prints did you find? Lara asked. We also found yours, Justine's, and Stepanov's prints. Both Stepanov's and Anita's prints? Lara's jaw dropped. She glanced over at Justine, who nodded. Lara couldn't believe what she was hearing. When she visited Anita at her practice, Lara remembered raising her eyebrow at the ancient and bulky computer. 
but that could be explained away by Fiddler's paranoia. Her father probably insisted on communicating over the dark web. Plus, the DNA could have been planted. The detective dipped his head. That's not all. A bystander recently responded to our call and submitted video footage of the attempt to run you down. We got a plate number, and it matches Stepanov's car. With his access to advanced de defense technology, the black BMW convertible, the matching license plate, and his prints, Stepanov is at the top of my suspect list for Sully's murder and for attempting to burn down your townhouse. And I think he was working with both Anita and Linda. Justin nod Justine nodded. That matches all of my evidence as well. I believe Anita ran the operation from inside from the outside a cyber shop. Stepanov worked with her as a complice an accomplice inside the NSA. And they used Linda's company to launder the money and gain access to the murder weapon. Lars shook her head vigorously. I don't see how all of this makes Anita accomplice. I just don't see her being involved with the attack. Rob massaged his temples and closed his eyes for a second. We're getting off track here. Deciding who killed Sully or who leaked classified information from NSA doesn't matter for planning purposes. We can't afford to waste more time speculating on the unknowns. Let's focus on what we know about the attack. The group around the table nodded. No one else was interested in a trap down the trip down the rabbit hole of Sully's murder. Rob opened the file in front of him. Okay, based on what we know, we need to protect two targets Fiddler plans to hit with biological weapons to be delivered by Beatles sometime tomorrow. Rob paused for affirmation by the group. I think we have sufficient evidence to deem the threat credible and significant. Again, head nods all around the room. I'd like to avoid causing a public panic if possible. And I think the situation is containable if we act now to prevent illness. He turned to the representative from the Department of Health and Human Services. Harold, can we activate the National Strategic Stockpile and distribute medical supplies in advance? Harold cleared his throat. Yes, we can. We have a good chance of containing the plague outbreak as long as we can start all personnel at both sites on antibiotics as soon as possible. To minimize casualties, antibiotics needed, need to be started within 24 hours of the first symptoms. The incubation period for the plague is anywhere from two to six days after exposure. Do you know how many people we're talking about? This is Colonel Jenkins from the Army, a voice squawked over the teleconference phone. Fort Dietrich has about 8,000 personnel on base during any given weekday. And NSA has about 40,000 personnel operating on Fort Meade on a daily basis, the voice from NSA chimed in over the phone. Hale, Harold rubbed his forehead. Okay, good. Supply won't be an issue. The stockpile contains 10-day antibiotics packages for over 300,000 people. If we can distribute the packages by tomorrow, we should have plenty of time to stave off any infections and contain an outbreak of the plague. Our quickest option would be to send two 12-hour push packages from the stockpile. We can request the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to get those out immediately, and they should be there by midday tomorrow. Harold looked at his watch to check the time. What does one of these push packages contain, Rob asked. About 50 tons of prepackaged emergency medical supplies, including antibiotics. We could instruct leadership of both sites to keep everyone inside the building until the antibiotics have been distributed. And what if we're wrong about the agent, Rob asked. Fiddler's going to use the plague, Lara said impatiently. He didn't mention anything else. I'm just asking the what if for contingency planning purposes, Rob said, glaring at her. Harold nodded. If we need a specific treatment or antidote, assuming one exists, the CDC can deploy additional supplies within 24 to 36 hours. 
Finch has piped up. How do we make sure the push packages arrive safely at Fort Dietrich and Fort Meade? I don't want to risk interception or any delays. Do you need assistance from Maryland, the Maryland or D.C. police? Harold shook his head. The supplies will be delivered in unmarked trucks and securely escorted by U.S. Marshals. Rob nodded and pointed at the man. Harold, make the call now. I don't want to lose any more time on this. Harold nodded, got up, and left the skiff to call the CDC. Okay, what are we going to do about the beetles? Rob asked the group. We have to prevent them from leaving the sites and flying into residential areas, infecting unsuspecting people and children. Can we spray them with pesticide? Peter shook his head. The Department of Agriculture has approved several pesticides for controlling beetles, but it's not that simple. If we spray them with pesticide, the swarm will disperse and flee into unaffected areas. That would lead to exactly the opposite of what you're hoping to achieve. Yeah, that doesn't sound good. We need to figure out how to contain them, Rob said. You could try jamming the radio frequency signals, Santa suggested. That might not work, Lara said. What if Fiddler acquired sophisticated encryption technology from Cybershop to protect radio frequency and GPS signals against jamming? Plus, if the Beatles are operating autonomously, there will be no signals to jam, Justine added. Both good points, Rob said, his face falling. He looked back up, surveying his team. Any other bright ideas? I might have one, Maggie said, wringing her hands. Christmas beetles are clumsy little buggers and terrible at flying. What if we sprayed them out of the air with high-pressure fire hoses? They'd drop to the ground and be unable to fly for a bit. Once they're stuck on the ground, we could douse them with pesticide and gather them up so they couldn't escape the area. Rob's eyes lit up. Peter, do you think that would work? Peter nodded, raising his eyebrow and smiling at Maggie. Yes, I think it could. But what if it's already dark when the swarms are put into play? Rob asked. Maggie wrinkled her forehead and contemplated her answer. Beetles are attracted to light. We could shut down all the lights except for one bright spotlight and attract the swarm to it. We should be able to get them out of the air with jets of water, but the darkness would make it difficult to make sure we got every last one of them. What about infrared light? Would that work to track the beetles in the dark? Lara asked. Maggie nodded. Okay, we'll make sure we have night vision goggles on hand. I think that's our best plan, day or night, for capturing the beetles. Rob said, Turning to Maria, can you have FEMA organize fire brigades at both sites to hose down the beetles? I want as many units as we can round up. Absolutely, Maria said. Okay, we'll send SURG units to both sites, fully equipped and ready to provide extra help in handling the situation. Copy that, a voice from SURG said over the phone. The door opened, and Harold returned into the room with a panicked look on his face. Um, Fiddler appears to be texting whoever owns the wearable smartphone. Multiple texts popped up on the home screen in the last few minutes, and he appears to be demanding an answer now. The blood drained from Lara's face. That was her phone. How did he get my number? Did you read them? She asked, getting up to leave the room and check her phone. Harold's face turned ashen. Something about Vic being safe and sound in his custody, but only as long as you agree to cooperate. Lara's blood ran cold. Fiddler has Vic. Thanks for listening to the Bionic Bug Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on iTunes. You can also support my time in producing the show with Patreon at www.patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash Natasha Bajma. See you next week.